Hello. Uh, before we start the episode proper, a quick reminder that the new season's crowdfunder is underway. That's the 9pm Autumn Series 2024. It's you, the generous listener, who makes this podcast possible. So if you've got a moment, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2024 uh, and read the blurb, maybe pledge your support. Uh but either way, do tell your friends about the pod. Every bit helps, etc., etc., etc. Now, for the crowdfunder, you've got until the 9th of March, but hey, why not do it now before you forget? Yeah? I mean, we'll still be here. Um, see you in a minute. The following episode of the 9 p.m. edict contains strong language, politics, and terrible people. Yes, way too many terrible people. Friday the 23rd of February 2024. Welcome to a marathon episode for Serious Political Tragics. I'm joined by Snarky Platypus to discuss at vast length the ABC TV documentary series Nemesis about the three recent Liberal Party Prime Ministers of Australia. Looking back at the nine years of Liberal Party rule of Australia, if there was a main character, I think it's Scott Morrison. Nine years of it, right? Obviously, we mentioned Tony Abbott giving a knighthood to Prince Philip. I mean, the whole concept was just silly in the first place, right? To create knighthoods. Like, you know, kind of this is like Abbott's kind of monarchy cosplay thing, right? And we also mentioned how Scott Morrison lied about RoboDebt, but... But this is really missing the entire point. There is nothing that says you have to be cunts towards poor people, is there? Of course, Malcolm Turnbull gets plenty of uh, airtime too, but there is more. There's Lunar New Year, there's Comedians, Absinthe, Magpies, Prague, Meaty Rice, and something even yummier. I would like a drunken chocolate cake. Hello, I'm Still Gary, and this is the 9pm Nine Years of Nemesis and Chocolate Cake with Snarky Platypus. Strap in. As forewarned in the introduction, with me, yes, is Snarky Platypus. Hello. Hello. Uh, what's been happening in your world in the last couple of weeks? Well, actually, the last few weeks, we last spoke to you in a previous year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still looking for a job, but, you know, I've got mm-hmm. a few job interviews lately, so that's going pretty well, I think. In the modern job um, search process, what are the things that piss you off? I mean, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apart from all of it. Yeah. I imagine, or I know for a fact, that the job search process is very different from the last time I actually applied for an actual job, which now that I think about it, was 1993. Well, um, in a way, I'm lucky because I've just been applying for public service jobs. I haven't had to deal with recruitment agents, which is one of the big frustrations, I think. Oh, they're just evil. Yeah, they are, but... um, yeah, I haven't gone. Th- like, I've gone through portals, um, the government sort of um, public service portals. He's gone through a portal, <laughs> <laughs> but I've just been dealing with yeah them directly rather as going through agents, and I think that's probably good for one sanity because agents are. I mean, agents, job agents are like real estate agents. You know, a similar kind of level of service. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in that they're not on your side. Well, I don't think they're on anyone's side, really. <laughs> well, they're wrong, obviously, you know, but um, to get the to get the commissions. Are we getting the psycho the psychological tests happening? Oh, I mean, 
I did do one, yes. Mm. Yes, recently. Which do you know one? which one, what it's called? No, but it was, it was like 150 questions. and just 150 questions? But just like rank these statements and repetitive. So kind of, I'm thinking like, what kind of data are you trying to get here exactly? I mean, I could kind of see what they're trying to do, but kind I of. I wonder if it was a Myers-Briggs. Have you done a, I mean, have you done something knowing it was a Myers-Briggs? I mean, so I, know, so I know that there is an official Maya Briggs test, right? Yeah. So I've done some... And unoff- I will say on it because yeah. it's thoroughly copyright and trademarked. Yeah. So and- I've done some unofficial Maya Briggs test, but I've never done an official one. So. Uh, it's corporate astrology anyway. Yeah, anyway, yeah. But Basically. anyway, how are you? Uh, well, um, I, I'm going okay. I'm having sleep problems. But look, shall I tell you about sleep problems or magpies? Magpies. Yeah, I thought that would be it. Uh, much more interesting. Uh, as uh, regular listeners know, or certainly regular followers of my socials, and I'm mostly on Blue Sky at the moment, um, I have a, a magnificent magpie army. It's now numbering 22 magpies or more that turn up to scavenge food, well, demand food each morning. And they've started, because there's so many of them, they started getting really quite aggressive against each other, squabbling as I throw the food scraps out, and more insistent about coming inside. So if I open the door at the moment, it's a bit like Boxing Day sales at David Jones. You know, you open the door and they all rush in. So it used to be about two or three. Now it's about seven. Um, There's there's one who I have a kind of bell to ring at my door, which is on a bracket high, an actual manual bell. And one of them sits up there just above my eye line and wants food immediately. There's one I've named Jason, who uh, will be the first in and, and the most thorough. And he's got a new trick. He realises that if I throw a handful of food out through the door, if he grabs one, rather than getting into the fight, of all the magpies trying to get the food from him, he runs further back inside and often under my desk. So when I finally get around to chasing all the magpies outside and I close the door, he emerges from under the coffee table (laughs) and goes, can can I have more food? Right. Now. (laughs) What about the other birds? So. Um, well, there are um, the two main ones uh, each each day are um, crimson rosillas and uh, grey butcherbirds. Yeah. Now, a grey butcherbird is in fact related to a magpie. Oh, right. um, they're in the same structurally thing. Uh, much smaller, much faster, much more manoeuvrable. And so there is a family of them who who come down and and wait. The mother and the father um, have decided each one takes care of one of the fledglings. Sure. And they come and wait at uh, on a tree at eye height just outside the door. But now the magpies know that I favour the butcher birds. Right. So now they gang up and swoop the butcher birds to try and chase mm. them away. So the, the butcher birds kind of make little noises to let me know they're there yeah. without trying not to alert the magpies to their presence. But aren't there like 20 magpies there or something? Well, there's, yeah, 20, 22 yeah. magpies and two or three butcher birds. Mm. But the youngest butcher bird has learnt now to catch food in midair, which is part of their thing, has learnt that it doesn't need to wait for its mother to catch some food and then follow the mother back. It, it now will wait on its own yeah. and, and catch it for itself. They also come up to the window and, and attract my attention and... 
But all of these birds, as I'm moving around different parts of the building and and am visible from different windows, they follow me around. Yeah. And the magpies, to get back to them, have a few assigned as scouts. Yeah. So if they see me get up in the morning and I come to the window and open the curtains, there is a sudden squeak, squeak, squeak from one of the magpies and then they all descend. Right. <laughs> so there's that. The other one of the rainbow, not rainbow lorikeets, they're down in Sydney, the uh, crimson rosellas, which are the ones up in the mountains. Um, it can be anywhere between two and eight, sometimes up to ten. I mean, they eat birdseed rather than um, uh, meat-based food. Let's not talk about sleep patterns. Yep. Uh, to those of you uh, who are not into politics, um, A, why the fuck are you even listening to this podcast? B, if the idea of reviewing, of reviewing the ABC TV program Nemesis really puts you off, I suggest you just scroll ahead until you get to the, um, the housekeeping and future me will drop in right here to say how many minutes and seconds that is. It's at timestamp 1 hour 16 minutes and 13 seconds. So, so do that. Australia, this is your new Prime Minister. Tony Abbott has officially become our 28th Prime Minister. Leadership changes, especially in government, leave serious scar tissue. And many people never get over such a thing. Yes, if you're an Australian political tragic, you will recognise that sound. Nemesis, the massive three-part, four-and-a-half-hour show about Coalition Prime Ministers Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. Do you have any opening comments, Snarky Platypus? So firstly, um, this is the first series of this type I've watched. So I've, I, I haven't watched Labour in Power or The Howard Years or The Killing Season, the Killing Season was the Rudd Gillard Rudd years. Before that, the Howard years was John Howard. I mean, he was, he was our Maggie Thatcher, although not as sexy, obviously. And then before that, Labour in Power was the series about uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. So the ABC's been doing these for 30 years. You haven't watched any of the others, so no, I have, no, it's um, fine. It's fine. I have a dim memory of maybe watching a bit of the Howard years, but I might have erased it from my memory. For You would have been a child. <laughs> 20-something. <laughs> uh, yeah, close enough. <laughs> the, the other thing I want to clarify is my comments on, I guess, the, the situations discussed in these. Obviously, I'm drawing on their the documentary and also my own, I guess, external knowledge. But well, that's that's yeah, what we're here for. Yeah. We're going to go through this and yeah, talk but, about the things but, we saw and what we think. Yeah, but I'm aware that there are other sources that cover, I guess, events that happened throughout this period. You know, there's like Nikki Savage's book, a few other things, but I haven't seen those. So kind of a yeah. Look, yeah. we'll link to all of that. Yeah. And and one of the things that frustrated me, and I'll get this off my chest now. Yeah. This is a program about the power politics of leadership. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who wanted the program to be about something else. Yep. 
They said, oh, it's about the coalition years. We want a program about all the terrible things the coalition government did and the corrupt and this, that, you know. That's a different program. And that's fine. Like, that's another thing. But this is about leadership in power politics. It's something the ABC has done through the previous three series and this is now the current one. And then whenever Labor falls out of power in their current government and it goes back to the coalition, which is what, next year? Year after. <laughs> the election next year. The, the election's next year. <laughs> oh, I'm going to annoy so many people with that. There will be another. Yeah. It's about power. It's about leadership. It's about factions and fighting. So I accept that people don't like that stuff, but this is a program about that. I agree with you to a certain extent, but my issue with that is, for example, in the second episode, they were talking about the neg, right? Okay, yeah. so uh, three episodes, one each prime yeah. minister. Yeah, so um, the second episode about Turnbull. Yeah. Yeah. Neg, yeah, 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 yeah right. kind of um, neg was the national energy guarantee, which was a Turnbull government thing. Yes, that's correct. So they made a big deal about it, but they didn't really explain what it was about. And and, and I agree, it's not about the policy, but. You do need to provide a little bit of context about what it is because because everyone was making out it was like complicated and bad, but we didn't really understand why it was complicated and bad. It was just politicians saying it was complicated and bad. And I guess we were getting their point of view, but also like we need to understand some of the context ourselves. And to be honest, the people watching this are political nerds. So kind of you can probably go oh, yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, that, this is a program for absolute yeah. political junkies. Yeah. So I think you can go into a little bit more detail just about the policy stuff because, you know. You know. Yeah, what well, was – see, I've forgotten. That was back in Turnbull's um, mm. prime ministership. Yeah. And, yes, the, the the National Energy Guarantee, the NEG, and we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves in the narrative here, but the NEG, they said, why would you call a policy NEG for negative yeah. and all that? It's like, yeah, that's bad branding. Um and people might say, well, the branding of a policy isn't important. It's what the policy is about. They go, fuck off if you want people to vote for it. Yeah. But I spent the entire segment wondering what the neg was. <laughs> I couldn't remember either. Yeah. I could not remember what the <laughs> yes. neg was. Yeah, and... Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to look it up now. And you're distracting from your own message if you don't really kind of... Exp- you, know, you don't have to go into, into a detailed explanation. Just mention what it was from a very high level, I think. Okay. A couple of sentences. Um, well, there's a Wikipedia page about yeah. it, yeah, which they could is. have just read yeah. the first bit. Okay, here's the first bit. It was an energy policy, Turnbull government, late 2017, to deal with rising energy prices and a lack of clarity for companies to invest in infrastructure. Broadly speaking, there would be assistance. No, no, wait. So here again, I'm, I'm now looking at it and going, well, okay, you have a lot of rules that the energy um, companies have to follow. Um, so, you're, so you're bringing standards. Is that kind of the the gist of it? You're bringing stand, well, more standards for the energy industry. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering in, in the context of what was happening at the time, energy prices were rising. And for those of you who have seen it rise even more in the last two years. Again, what were, what were they complaining about? I mean, yeah, it's got a lot worse. But it was essentially, now that I – I don't fucking know. I still don't know what it's yeah. about. I still don't know what it meant. When you're talking about policy, right, and they're raising it as an issue and the politicians are talking about it, you, the viewers do need to understand a little bit what the policy is, I think, to give it some context. Because, sure. Yeah, because – 
if politicians are saying it's good or bad, but there's no other context, it's, you know, it, I, I don't think it really kind of adds to kind of uh, our understanding of the situation. Well, looking broadly at, you know, this whole nine-year period, my God, there are some policies that without knowing the details, we know what it meant. Yeah. Operation Sovereign Borders. Yes. Turn back the boats, stop the boats, stop yeah. the boats, stop the boats, stop the boats. You, you're bound to hear that soundbite again in a minute. We know what that was. Same-sex marriage, we know what that was. But various others, yeah, when you look back at some of this, you think, wait, that was that was a thing which sort of happened and then it was dumped. And unless you're into the policy side of that, again, it's a series about politics and power, not about government and policy. Yeah. So here we are. Shall we go into it um, episode by episode or...? I was about to suggest exactly that. And episode one is about the Tony Abbott years 2013 to 2015, more than a decade ago is the beginning of this. And and we pick up the story when he became leader of the opposition after Malcolm Turnbull, which is another, another whole thing. Let's not do that bit. Yep. Let's go straight into Tony Abbott. The thing that surprised me here is that, John Howard, you know, one of Australia's longest-serving prime ministers uh, from about 1875 to, I don't know, it it felt like a very long time. I stole that joke from Fab (laughs) and Thatcher. Um, (laughs) John Howard in this was surprisingly forthcoming, I thought, about some people's weaknesses. One of the most important things in politics when you go from opposition into government is that the the leader has got to manage the transition. There are different skills needed to govern. I think Tony's difficulty once he got there, he didn't make the transition. Uh, as effectively as others have done and you are required to do. And that was something that a lot of people felt, I think, that Tony Abbott was great at criticising other people, but now that you've chased the car and you've caught the car, what do you want to do with it, little woof, woof, woof Tony Abbott? The thing that that came to mind about the Tony Abbott episode is that the key power brokers in the era refused to speak to the documentary. So Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott himself. And Julie Bishop, Joe Hockey, Matthias Corman. All four of them did not speak to the documentary. These were important people. Well, Matthias Corman was important throughout multiple eras, but mm. especially Abbott, Hockey and Bishop. They all did not talk to the documentary. And that's one of the things. They made that point about Tony Abbott in particular by saying he's the first prime minister who has not participated in 30 years yeah. of these programs. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? I'll come back to this point a bit later regarding someone else. But here is your chance in, as I keep saying, a landmark documentary to put your side to sketch out your legacy. You know, it's it's this is stuff that clips and sound bites from this will be around forever. Yes. And, and I agree, but, yeah, it, it, it wasn't just Tony being missing out the issue, is it? It's like All Bishop, Bishop and Hockey, yes. And Bishop being the deputy and, and Hockey being the treasurer, right? Mm. So, like, you know, they raised the 2014 budget as, a, as an issue in this you know, 
in defection, but, you know... Um, yeah, the, the story there is yeah. that after getting into government and Tony Abbott made certain promises, weirdly on SBS, yeah. <laughs> these promises... Uh, no cuts to education, no cuts to health, no change to pensions, no change to the GST, and no cuts to the ABC or SBS. And then broke them. Yeah. And his own side, well, his own side, other Liberal Party people were angry about yeah. that. that yep. And there were demonstrations on the street. Yeah, but all we got was like backbenchers and like more minor ministers complaining about it, but we didn't get any insight from Tony or, or Joe and kind of, yeah, it leaves it lacking, right? Tony and Joe and, and Matthias. Yep. Joe and Matthias, Joe Hockey and Matthias Cormann were the ones caught smoking a cigar yes. <laughs> after they just said, this is the pain you have to take. We want lifters, not leaners, and we're cutting all your benefits. So with those absences, it's very hard to get a good insight into what happened during the Abbott era, right? So what I found this episode useful, it, it, it actually it sets up the future episodes quite well. So, mm -hmm. you know. Because, you know, you, you get a, a sense of Turnbull and, and Morrison both kind of manoeuvring kind of, you know, to set themselves out in the future. And and yeah. that's and that's what I thought this episode was best at because we did not get any good insight into kind of the power politics behind, well, with, with Abbott, Hockey and Bishop. So It's an interesting three-act play, <laughs> unintentionally. Mm. We have Abbott coming in after Labor had just imploded and that's that's the subject of the other series yeah. right the killing season yeah. which is aptly named and they came in abbott came in with quite a solid support mm. he won a bunch of seats mm. as john howard said he couldn't make the transition from an opposition leader to an actual leader yeah. the actual prime minister as i said he he chased the car and he caught it and now it's like Whatever. And there's an interesting line, I think, from Wyatt Roy. Wyatt Roy features quite a bit in this thing. People may remember him as the youngest ever Australian parliamentarian, and we'll, we'll come back to him. Yes. But he he has this to say about when he asked um, Tony Abbott, what's, what's your vision for Australia? Look, I think from my conversations with Tony, he clearly understood what he was against. But, I mean, there were many occasions when I said to him, um, what is your vision for Australia and where do you want to take the country? And he treated that as a trick question almost and did struggle to answer that question, which uh, I think for me was a very disappointing situation because fantastic to have the clear sense of what you were against. But you do, as Prime Minister, I think, have to have a sense of what you are for and where you want to take the country. So, so Abbott saw that as a trick question, mm. right? Um, what do you mean? What's my view? What? what? No. Um, I want to mention some of the comments I got on yeah. the socials about this. So JRB says on uh, – that's his handle, JRB says. He uh, only uh, came to Australia in 1997, um, but he said he met Abbott for coffee once and said, a consummate professional at Soundbites but no listener. He has some thoughts on the others which we'll come to later. And a friend of ours who has uh, met Tony Abbott at various social occasions said he – is an engaging dinner guest. And I've heard that from other people yes. too. But I've also heard from people who worked in defence. Now, we saw in the series, we saw in Nemesis that when MH17, the Malaysian Airlines flight with some Australians on board, was shot down over Ukraine, 
by what we now know to have been Russian little green men. They were in Europe, but they weren't. They weren't. Russia wasn't acknowledged in them. Abbott had his famous phrase about shirt fronting Putin. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front Mr. Putin. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. Uh, I and then, like, wanted to send Australian troops to Ukraine where the crash site was near the Russian border to sort this out. And it was actually senior defence people who pointed out that maybe that wasn't a thing to do. What I wanted to mention there was many people who have connections with the Department of Defence and elsewhere have told me that in classified meetings, Tony Abbott, the mad monk, and wanting to fight the, the, the brown Muslims in the Middle East, the stuff we saw was just the tip of the iceberg. He would have just, well, he, want, he wanted to bring it on, basically. Yeah, and I think we actually got a good sense of, well, um, I guess to bring up something related, um, Peter Credlin and Tony Abbott. So, oh, yeah. Peter Credlin, for those who don't remember, how could you not remember if you're into politics, Peter Credlin, Tony's chief of staff. She is now, of course, a, a significant personality on Sky News Australia after dark. She was Tony's master. I mean, Tony Abbott was a glove puppet. Yeah. But it's clear that she was a great moderating influence on Tony because, you know, from what you said, otherwise, you know, like she she, she probably wasn't at those meetings and he's like, you know. Something that came up in the series was that backbenchers found if they wanted to meet with Tony Abbott, they had to first meet with yeah. Peter Credlin who would decide yeah. whether what they wanted yeah. to say was worthy of Tony what? Abbott's time. What about the footage of Peter Credlin telling off Stuart Robert in public? Yeah, we can't play that here because yeah. it's visual. Only. I know, but that was, but but I can empathise with Peter in that situation because I would tell off Stuart Robert too if I was in that situation. <laughs> okay, that's not what I thought you were going to say. I mean, correct, because Stuart Robert is just an yeah, idiot. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but we got a good insight into, yeah, like Tony Abbott's lack of discipline in a way, but kind of Peter's her influence on his behaviour to make him presentable to the public as a leader. But after the big vote when there was the backbencher rebellion yeah. and they said, we're going to vote on a spill of the leadership. So it's either Tony Abbott or, as they called it, the empty chair yes. vote. Your vote is you either want Tony Abbott to continue or anyone else. Yeah. And there were about 35, 39. Uh, again, I'll splice in the correct number. 2015, in February, the leadership spill motion, 39 votes against Tony Abbott, 61 for him. Not a good result. He then promised to listen more to backbenchers and this, that and the other, but... There is a part in episode one where there is a bit of foreshadowing about Morrison's eventual strategy to become PM, and Turnbull mentions it, which, which I found interesting. Scott would have liked me to challenge Abbott and fail. Look, I, I know, listen, I know the guy, right? I know, I've known him for years. I know how he operates. Scott's dream sequence was, his first dream sequence was for me to challenge Abbott, to lose, to be discredited as the disruptor, the challenger. And then when Abbott continued to underperform, for Scott to come through the middle. As the, as the compromise candidate. This is what they call the stalking horse candidate, isn't it? You, 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 you know who you really want, 
yeah. you play off the other players yeah. against each other yeah. until but, they self-destruct. But this is foreshadowing of what happens in the end of episode two, <laughs> which I found interesting. Malcolm Turnbull was one of the very few people in the entire series who reflected on his own part. Oh, yeah. I mean, I found him convincing and kind of, um, you know, obviously – you know, you try to make yourself look better in all, you know. <laughs> That's literally why yeah. you go on these series, yeah. right? Yes, but he gave enough insight to be convincing rather than Morrison. Morrison was very evasive throughout, I thought, in, in, in the whole series. Uh, yeah, we will certainly get to that. Yeah. In this same period, um, so many of Morrison's peers, I mean Tony Abbott's peers, were worried about how much he, again, was talking up the terrorism threat. He kept repeating the Mm. Daesh death cult, the Islamic death cult, and the increasing number of flags at his press conference, which eventually got up to ten flags with with him at the, the middle. I mean, looking back at that now, it does seem like, what the fuck was all that about? It was talking up, not to diminish what the terrorism threat was about, but... Oh, there was... There was never a real terrorism threat, let's be honest. I mean, kind of, you know, yeah. You know, Morrison is, is just playing up to, I guess, a lot of on Australian insecurities about, I guess, non-white people. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. There's a theme for you, yes, you and me but, talking about forever. Yeah. yeah, but that's, yeah, I think that was that kind of, you know, and to be honest, I don't think the Liberal Party really reflected on that enough. You know, they just, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it, but I guess... No one can ever make that translation to the next thing, which is kind of all. This is a little bit racist, isn't it? So. <laughs> there was that, but I noticed it about halfway through the episode. We got on to the knighthood for Prince Philip when Tony Abbott decided as a captain's pick that he was going to bring back knights and dames of the Order of Australia. Not, well, not bring back, it was never a thing. And then gave a knighthood to Prince Philip, a man who has and had no honours ever whatsoever, no titles. Not related to Australia anyway. Like he's got, he's, he's got, he's got, a, lot of, he's got a lot of formal titles there, mm. like in, in terms mm. of knighthoods in, in Europe, et cetera. Uh, yeah. I, what I found interesting was that that, for so many people in the Liberal Party, certainly the bank benches, was that that was for them the final straw. Now, I, I would like to hear from some of the others who we didn't hear from, like, for you, what was the final straw about yeah. Abbott has to go? But for so many, it was waking up on Australia Day, seeing the news that he'd given a knighthood to Prince Philip. And I love Barnaby Joyce's comment on that. This is where you, you, you press off on your mobile phone and, and jump down a wombat hole. <laughs> um, we'll come back to Barnaby again in a minute, I'm sure. When you saw giving Prince Philip a knighthood, what was your reaction? How can you react to it? (laughs) (laughs) From left field, kind of, you know. (laughs) You know. (sighs) I mean, the whole concept was just silly in the first place, right, to create knighthoods. You know, kind of this is like Abbott's kind of monarchy cosplay thing, right, you know. Well, he was the the leader of the uh, Australians for a constitutional monarchy and Malcolm Turnbull was the leader of the Australian Republican movement. And there is a a lovely clip from the debate between the two. And uh, if I can find 
the entire video of yeah. that debate, I, I will link to it because, dear listener, I link to all of the things on the podcast. You know that. You know that. I spent like about an hour per episode linking everything in, so I hope you fucking will appreciate it. And then RoboDebt happened. Yes, and I've got a note here about this. Mm-hmm. Morrison blame, blaming public service for RoboDebt lol. Yes. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Yes, he blamed the public service for it. The basic deal is there was advice very early on that what, what they were proposing to do was illegal. Yep. And then as they started working through the policy, uh, they eventually got a document which came back and did not mention that it was illegal. We have Morrison still claiming that had the public servants told him it was illegal, he wouldn't have done it. But this is really missing the entire point. There is nothing that says you have to be cunts towards poor people, is there? <laughs> well, this was the thing, and that was there, there was this idea that if you cut down on welfare fraud, which is, is not really a thing anyway, it's... You know, there's a bit of it, but not much. And even then, like, these people... They thought they could get, what, a couple of billion back from it. <laughs> they always overestimate the money that they can get from these things. And also, these are basically kind of people below the poverty line getting a bit more money. <gasps> oh, horrors. You know, kind of, <laughs> kind of, what are we kind of, you know... I mean, putting aside the people who, you know, create 47 false identities and really do that. Yeah, that, but... That's but, a thing, but it's very rare. Very, yeah, that's like one or two instances. <laughs> right? yeah, it's yeah. hard to do. Yeah, you have to hard. really put effort yeah. into that. And, like, to be honest, if you can, if you put that effort to get that amount of money kind of, you know, I mean... I wouldn't you. approve it, but, I, but I'm going to go, you put in the effort to get that money. <laughs> <laughs> like, bank robbery is hard. I, I'm letting them... They got into that bank. They stole $50,000. They had to organise sawn off shotguns. Yeah, but they had um, the difference between banks and poverty-level benefits is quite significant. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We, we keep talking about Turnbull here, but he, as, as we say, he's one of the few people who reflected on his time here. I just want to quickly play two grabs. One is where he said when you're trying to judge the numbers for a leadership spill, how you can judge those numbers. In politics, when you're talking to people about voting, particularly in leadership ballots, and I've been in a lot of them, the only person on whom you can completely rely is the one that looks you in the eye and says, I would rather cut off my right arm than vote for you, you bastard. That person you can definitely put down as a no. And then when Turnbull finally did in that final vote become Prime Minister rather than Tony Abbott, by one vote it's he did reach out to Tony Abbott but yeah. he didn't welcome my inquiries. What did he say? He generally told me to fuck off. He had quite a few variations on that. I mean, I'll give Tony credit. He's being very emotionally honest. In that kind of <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, fuck off, Malcolm, is, is I mean, a valid emotion. Look at it. I mean, if you were Prime Minister... And someone had just, and you were just deposed, you know, kind of. <laughs> well, yeah, you've yeah. just been sacked. Yeah, exactly. You know. By someone you hate. Yes. Why should you be dignified about it? <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull is an interesting character. 
He is. And I think everyone, everyone who follows me on social media knows my views on Turnbull generally. I don't really have a high opinion of him, but my opinion of him actually went a little bit higher after watching just him in Nemesis generally. You know, he was, he was willing to, as you mentioned before, he was willing to be reflective about kind of the whole situation. Mm. He was willing to show emotion on the screen. Yes. yes, like, you know, you could tell, like, during, I guess, the end of his leadership and that spill, he was still quite upset about it. And you could tell, you know, not, not like Scott Morrison, who really tried to obfuscate his emotions throughout the whole the whole documentary. But I, I, when we get yeah. to part three, I certainly have some observations yeah. Yeah. about but, Scott but Tur- fucking Morrison. But Turnbull was willing to reflect and mm-hmm. actually show his emotional reaction to what happened. And so, to me, anyway, he comes a lot as more human than kind of, you know. A bit more, more human than human. No, that's no, blatant. No, but, but I understand him a little bit better, you know, after watching all, all this, you know. Mm, mm. Has, your, has your opinion of him improved or just has it become more nuanced? I, I understand some of the moves behind his actions better. So, uh, so I do have in my notes, for example, like remember there was a um, Malcolm called a spill instead of letting a backbencher do so. Yes, he decided to get on the front foot yes. and go, fuck yes. this, folk. Yeah. yeah. And and I understand that now a bit better why he did that, you know. Kind of his reasoning came across fine, you know. And to be honest, and if, if I was in his situation, I agree. I would do that because I would want to be on the front foot. I wouldn't want some backbencher, you know, calling the leaders. I would, I would want to do it myself, right? <laughs> Appearances matter, right? Appearances matter in these situations, right? On a related note, I found it, very interesting that he talked about the fact that he came to politics late, yeah, you know, well into his adulthood, <laughs> in his 50s, I think he said. Yeah, I, oh, mean, wow. I mean, it was before that, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. but when he had to go and meet Donald Trump, yeah. he, he makes it clear that he had experience dealing with billionaires and leaders and knew how to play the game. I had never done any business with Trump, but obviously I knew all about him. Big bullying billionaires. They all think they're, you know, God's gift to humanity. And if you suck up to them or knuckle under, they just want more. They did mention Turnbull's competence at kind of international relations in this yes. episode, yes, which was which I agree was one of his better points. And I thought it was well highlighted. In terms of other impressions in the episode, Barnaby. Barnaby, yeah. Barnaby Joyce, uh, many times leader of the National <laughs> Party. <laughs> he is a colourful character, and we're not just talking yeah. about his very red yeah. face yeah. and the beetroot thing, which I think is a little unfair. That's clearly yeah. a health-related yeah. but, issue. But in a term of episode, he, you know, we got some interesting insights into Barnaby a little bit. So, firstly, he thought he was like Turnbull's guard, like you know, kind of like his protector in a way. I think Barnaby is kind of a <laughs> kind of exaggerating a little bit because I know that Barnaby and Malcolm had a good relationship. I I did get that impression, but I think Barnaby thinks that because you know Turnbull turned on him during you know I guess the affair right when the affair was outed and basically that that was that was a so this is the thing for those of you joining late. I mean I don't know why you're even listening to this podcast if you're not already <laughs> across this stuff. Yeah. Barnaby Joyce, who was married. Had an affair with Vicky Campion, who was his media advisor. His media advisor, and he had basically said when there were inquiries that this is none of anyone's business. You know, yeah. how dare you? But then, Sherry Markson, of all people, yeah. ran that 
in the Daily Telegraph yeah. and had photographs. Yes. Barnaby's reaction to the whole situation in this documentary was interesting. So firstly, he, he admitted he lied to Malcolm about this, so, which was kind of a – I mean, fair enough. Number two, he went – he wanted to physically assault Malcolm after Malcolm talked about, you know, I guess his situation in public. In a, in a press conference. Yeah, yeah. And which kind of, you know, looking at that, I can see where Malcolm maybe went a little bit too far. But it's funny that Malcolm commented afterwards, he's saying, oh, looking back at it, I think it was actually entirely appropriate, <laughs> the level of detail I went into. It, it is worth saying that in this series, um, the interviews with each um, Prime Minister certainly yeah. must have been very long Yes, yeah. I, I, there is a behind-the-scenes episode, which yeah. I, I haven't watched yet, yeah. but I know that you probably have someone for half a day, maybe yeah. a whole day when you're doing these interviews. But in this case, um, Barnaby's reaction to the whole situation is, well, it just shows how disconnected, like, camera types are from, you know, the population, right? Kind of a, you know, you know having, having an affair with your staff is a thing. It's not because it's your personal affairs, right? It's because there's a conflict of interest problem here, right? And Barnaby just did, did not seem to get that. Like, I know it happens a lot in Canberra. You know, we've seen it with other ministers, you know, Alan Tudge and his, and, and Rochelle, what's, I, I forget her surname. But staffers and MPs having affairs is not uncommon in Canberra. That's my understanding. You know, voters view it differently. Yeah. And I think, I think this is what Malcolm tapped into a little in kind of, but, but Malcolm did preach about the moral of a marriage a little bit too much for my liking in kind of that speech, but I understand why I did it because, you know. Look, I mean, uh, Malcolm Turnbull seems to have had a stable and long-lasting marriage yeah. with, with another yeah. powerful individual, um, yeah. Lucy Turnbull, yeah. who is, former, is… A former Lord Mayor of Sydney. Yeah, you know, she's a, a businesswoman in her own rights. Yep. They've been a power couple, a Sydney yeah. power couple for quite some yeah. time. My, my, my point about Barnaby in, in kind of, I guess, he too seems to be a little disconnected from reality, just generally. I'm going to say yeah. we are recording this in a week where Barnaby Joyce was found um, presumed drunk, lying in the street in Canberra <sighs> on his, like literally on his back, his knees up on a planter Swearing box, into his phone. Call, on his yeah. phone, yeah. calling someone a cunt yes. on his phone, yeah. which is not a good look. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'm glad they clarified that you know that it wasn't he wasn't referring to Vicky. <laughs> they went to the effort of doing that. And there's a whole thing where he's been defended, saying, "Well, he had a problem with you know mixing yeah whatever whatever mixing yeah. drugs with, whatever, with medication whatever. or whatever." Yeah. There is apparently something else going on in his life. Whatever. Um, on that, it's not really the subject of what we wanted to talk about today, yep. but I will link to a friend of the pod, John Birmingham, and his Alien Side Boob weekly uh, column. Um, he talks about Barnaby because he he knows Barnaby. Yeah. He interviewed him a long time ago, and it it provides more nuance to what's happened. That's that's all I say. I whatever. Um, but Barnaby in this series, look, he's. He's good for quotes, and I, I'm afraid I, I forgot to mention in episode one his famous comment about Tony Abbott. Tony is a person who's incredibly intelligent at times. You know, my own personal view is people have three quadrants of their brain. They have academic intelligence, social intelligence, and sporting intelligence. Well, Tony's brain had a lot of the intelligence stuff, crowded out a bit of the social IQ. And I know he's got a lot of grief about that, but... It's a slip of the tongue. Like Tony Abbott's suppository of wisdom goes in there. Another point I would like to raise about this episode is when they're talking about 
the jockeying between the different leadership candidates when they're talking about, I guess, overthrowing Malcolm, right? There's a comment from quite a, from two or three f- female MPs during later on in the episode. So I think Linda Reynolds and Melissa of Gilmore and another one. No, um, Julia, Julia Banks, I think from, yeah, from Chisholm. They were talking about how they felt bullied by their colleagues. And then Andrew Hasty commented that it's just a part of the game. And then this is kind of like, this is part of the Liberal Party's problem, right? There's actually a chance for the Liberal Party men to actually kind of try and make up for it. You know, we, we know that there is, there's a perception problem, but they just reinforced it by saying, look, you know, kind of Liberal Party women in this episode are expressing their concerns about feeling pressured and bullied into doing certain things. But Andrew Hastings said, oh, no, it's all part of the game. And we're like, well, this is why... Fuck off Andrew Hastings. Yeah, but this is why you're going to lose kind of <laughs> the next few elections. <laughs> so, you know. Do you still think he's hot, Andrew Hastings? From one angle, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe after a few more glasses of wine. <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to play this comment from Russell Broadbent. My experience of Scott is an arrogant asshole. Because my interactions with Scott had been really awful. Smug. But this is during the battle between Morrison and Turnbull now to be PM. And people are trying to get... Peter Dutton involved, yeah. that's a whole thing for another time. Even when we come back to that, the interviewer, Mark, Mark Willisey, yeah, um, asks Scott Morrison whether Morrison was counting the numbers, you know, and had his people counting the numbers yeah. for this overthrow. And here is what Morrison said. Well, certainly no one was making any calls on my behalf on my instruction or my invitation. That's not a no. He's saying, not on my instruction or on my invitation. That still means they could have just done it. So I've got another note about Morrison saying twice in this documentary series, he denies having a faction quite outright and he's talking shit. He does have a faction. (laughs) I mean, mean, the fact that Morrison talks shit is something we are certainly going to cover in the next scene. But I would love to have a factional chart of people I mean, I know that the Liberals don't have factions officially, but um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> the Liberals don't have factions officially. <laughs> and now, dear listener, the time you've been waiting for and yet fearing, Scott Morrison. What's his middle name? Does he have a middle name? Oh, I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Scott John Morrison. It's <laughs> disappointing. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, <laughs> I could talk. All right. Prime Minister of the Commonwealth of Australia, 2018 to 2022. I will say that on the socials when I asked for comments, this was the one that most people got angry about. The phrase smug cunt came up a lot. Mm -hmm. But you have said that this was the most interesting of the three episodes. Why is that? Looking back at the nine years of Liberal Party rule of Australia, if there was a main character, I think it's Scott Morrison, right? Because um, Sovereign Borders was quite important early on in the Liberal liberal rule, right, during Tony Abbott era, right? Yeah. One of the key policies early on. Scott Morrison's policy. Yep. Robert as well, which, which, which came to... Inf- which came to, I guess, 
Ricketts damage later on. <laughs> and Robodet, again, was in, a, in the Abbott era. Yes. The whole documentary series is kind of building towards Morrison's reign. Now, in the terminal episode, he kind of, I think they kind of understate his, I guess, his activity in the terminal episode because um, he's there. This is the uh, be- Morrison's activity. Yeah. So he's there at the beginning when they talk about this Turnbull thinks he's leaking to the media, right? But then he kind of disappears until the leadership challenge in the end. But I think there's some factional activity that not that they don't really talk about in kind of you know um, in the documentary. Maybe, but it's during Turnbull's leadership that Morrison became treasurer. Yeah. And we have that classic photograph of Turnbull yeah. as PM yeah. and Morrison putting his hand around his shoulder yes. saying, they, they I support that, yeah. my Prime Minister. Yeah. But but um, I think in the Turnbull so they understate his activity a little bit because, um, yeah, as in, he's there at the beginning and then pops up at the end. Obviously at the end because, well, he becomes Prime Minister, obviously, and he becomes Prime Minister because... Well, this is his episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. He becomes Prime Minister because Dutton can't count. Now, before we get into the Morrison era, which is the one that's going to make everyone very, very angry, uh, Poodles, um, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say, um, Christopher Pine actually had a warning um, because Morrison came in having won back a bunch of seats the Coalition had lost in the previous election under yep. Turnbull. And he made this point. I do think after that too many people in the Morrison government decided that they'd won the election because... They were geniuses, as opposed to the fact that we'd won the election because Labor threw it away, and it's quite a different um, result. And that lack of humility, I think, infected too many people in the Morrison government who believed that they could do no wrong. And it's true, because very shortly after that, we had the bushfires and Scott Morrison was away in Hawaii, and yet when he's explaining that again, and it's something that comes up throughout this episode, he just dissembles. He, You know, it, he's always got an excuse. It's always something, I made the right decision, but it's other people didn't understand and that was weaponized against me. Yes. And it's just all through this episode. He has no ability, well, he may reflect privately on what he's done and some of his backbenchers said that was a thing that happened. But throughout this, on camera, he cannot admit ever having done anything wrong. It's always, oh, well, I reject that or I don't agree with that or that's just their opinion. He shifts blame a lot, you know, about RoboDebt and things like that. Yeah, RoboDebt's yeah. the public services problem. Yeah. Even though the Robodet Royal Commission says he, he was at fault in many ways, and then as we see in a little super again, he rejects those findings. And I want to say an important thing here. Reject is not refute. Refute means providing evidence and proof to disprove the, the claim that's being made. In this case, we have a royal fucking commission comes down with a finding that he had not been honest about this and he says, oh, well, I reject that. Mate, I don't give a fuck if you reject it or not. He also ob- obfuscates about, you know, kind mm. of a, all about everything. Really. <laughs> <laughs> about everything. Yeah. The multiple minister things is raised multiple times in the third episode, but 
never really addressed <sighs> sufficiently. Yes. Um, I, I will have to – no, I won't look it up now. Uh, future me will drop in the actual list. Beep. Okay, there's actually a Wikipedia article about this because, of course, there is the Scott Morrison ministerial positions controversy. The five ministries he appointed himself to were health, finance, industry, science, energy, resources, home affairs, and treasury. And broadly speaking, he didn't tell anyone. Beep. His argument was, oh, well, you know, we're concentrating the power here and it's one, it's the health minister. What if the health minister gets sick? Now, some of us might think, well, if the health minister's sick, then you quickly nip over to the Governor-General's office and swear in a new health minister. But what Morrison did was decide, oh, well, I'll be health minister as well and, and not, not tell, tell the anyone person, about it. <laughs> and not tell anyone about it. Now, we, we now have laws to say you have to tell people who the actual government ministers are. You would think that would be a basic transparency yeah. issue, but and he still doesn't see anything wrong with what he did. Yeah, Morrison's arguably the main character of, like, yes, you know, sort of the, the machinations build up to his prime ministership, right? Exactly. Act one, Tony Abbott. Oh, no, uh, he's not so good. We need someone else who the people like. Oh, Malcolm Turnbull's good. People love Malcolm Turnbull. The Liberal Act Party hate him. <laughs> <laughs> Act two, Malcolm Turnbull. And then does he have a spine? And now that we've disposed of both those people, yeah. the, the party can't deal with either of them, somehow Scott Morrison becomes Prime Minister and here we are. Yeah, and I agree with Pine. Like kind of the 2019 election, like after that election, like Morrison thought, oh, you know, Australia loves me, kind of, you know. Oh. Yeah. And there's... No, they didn't love yeah. you. They just didn't like Turnbull and, and how he had disappointed them. As friend of the pod cartoonist John Kadelka has said on, on uh, this pod a couple of times now, the thing about Turnbull is that you know he's going to be disappointing, but then he turns out to be even more disappointing. Yeah, well, this is one of my uh, be People who follow me know yes, I bitch about Malcolm Turnbull quite a bit on my, on my social media accounts. But since the Republican referendum, kind of, you know, oh yeah. god, we can't go back to that. For me, that question I mean, it comes up: Why was he disappointing? Well, he came in with a massive popularity figure mm. after Tony Abbott. Yep, he could have done anything, but he was afraid of the far right elements of the Liberal Party brackets, which does not have factions, um, <laughs> who hated him because he was socially progressive. Since the Republican referendum, that should have been indicative of what Malcolm's political skills were. You know, Malcolm, Malcolm is quite charismatic, but when it comes to dealing with factional politics, he's not very good at it. And I think this should have been more kind of well-known. I mean, you've got a point there because the Australian Republican referendum was in 1999. It really was Tony Abbott versus Malcolm Turnbull. It was kind of like a precursor to all of this. But then we failed it again in 2023 when we had a referendum that put up the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Well, the voice was non-specific because lessons to learn from the Republican debate, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was the wrong lesson to learn, but this might be for another podcast, to be honest. So, you know, let's kind I of, know, that's, yeah. that's another whole yeah. thing. But when the people opposed to the Indigenous uh, voice said, 
if you don't know, vote no. That's actually an incredibly powerful slogan. If you yeah, don't yeah. know what this means, yeah. don't yeah. don't and, support it. And to be honest, I, I can't argue with that. To be honest, but that's for another. Yes, that's for another. I don't, podcast. I don't. Yeah. We'll do that another yeah. time. Yeah. Back to the wonderful world of Scott Morrison, who people described as megalomaniac. He was quite anti-women. He yeah. was quite socially conservative. Can we say that? Um, whatever. So yeah, there was the whole oh, "I was off in Hawaii" thing. Yeah. And we saw, like, the actual Deputy Prime Minister, Malcolm McCormick, saying, well, am am I acting Prime Minister or yes. not? You know, if someone asks me, I, I need to be able to answer that question. Yeah. Which, when you think about it, is reasonable enough? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, hello, today is Thursday. Who is currently yeah. the one with the power to declare war? Yeah. Or whatever needs to be done. Um. And it was not long after that that we had the COVIDs. I mean, I was intrigued to see so many people saying, not not the bushfire thing, he'd fuck that up. But the COVID thing, here was his chance to take leadership and do things, and he didn't. I mean, I will be a bit forgiving towards Morrison in this situation. So It was all pretty fucked, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all fucked, and... Given how division of power works in Australia, health is mainly a state thing, right? Yep. So the premiers do have control over all of this. Yep. So national cabinet is a very symbolic thing, but really you're relying on the state to implement. All of this. I mean, it is. They created a thing where he could talk with the state premiers. Yep. But he wanted to run everything centrally. That came through in, in the episode, right. that he wanted to be the dictator and the state premiers, who by that stage were largely Labor Party premiers, wanted to kind of point out that they had sovereign fucking powers in their own states. Well, yes, and and I guess the bits that were national, like the vaccines, for example, he did... You know, they didn't do a good job of that. <laughs> they fucked up there. So, and yeah. and I think Jane Holton, who was yes. the the public servant put in charge of all this, yes. she put that very very bluntly indeed. The vaccination program done safely, done properly, which is what we're doing here in Australia. It's not a race. It's not a competition. When I heard him first use that term, uh, "it's not a race," I actually shouted at the television. I never do that. I was so angry, I can't describe it to you. It was just so wrong. It's not a race, it's not a competition. What did you shout? It was the F word and it was rather loud. And and, and I agree because Morrison in the polling had a massive significant kind of boost from the polling, right? Well, yeah. Australia well, initially, was, yes. Initially, because yeah. Australia was seen as doing well. And yeah. look, it happens at any time of crisis. Yes. Any political leader who has been seen to provide strength, wins, right? That's why a war is great for someone's political polling because they're now a strong leader, they're they're representing the nation and all of that. A curious bit of this episode was when the Premier of Victoria, Dan Andrews, was actually reasonably supportive of Morrison. Even though, what's a word for those cunts who build their entire fucking personality about the politics of COVID? I'll, I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Snarky Platypus is sitting opposite me and wishing to dissociate himself from every, <laughs> everything I've just said. I'm happy to, to, to wear it. As folks said in the program, that was a chance for Morrison to show his leadership and he kind of did and his polls went up, but it didn't last. And, and along with that, his whole April Sun in Cuba performance yes. on 60 Minutes. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh, take me to the April sun in Cuba. I can't remember the words. Oh, hey, I think he learnt that in Hawaii, didn't he? <laughs> he wants to have it both ways, and not in a supernaut sense, but in a oh god, there's a reference. But in that idea that. Oh, I'm Prime Minister of Australia, but at the same time, oh, I'm just a bloke who goes to the footy and I play the ukulele. Have you noticed that, you know, he likes to emphasise the fact that he makes curry as some kind of, you know, thing. Oh, that he- God. Did that ever happen before he became Prime Minister? I suspect not. And, like, who cares? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh... So does suburban so dads can be clumsy with their language rubbish? The vast majority of coalition women we've spoken to, they don't believe that you're sexist or mm. that you have any problem with women. Mm. Many say sometimes the language is just a little clumsy. Yeah, that's fair enough. Jenny would say the same thing. <laughs> I'm sure she would. If my daughters were older, they would probably would too. You know, suburban dads can be a bit clumsy with their language. The forced kind of media kind of stuff, you know, as, um, like with his family, you know, they're not really comfortable there necessarily. And I love the fact that, that the Prime Minister's office... <laughs> have decided that his old sneakers that were in the photo were not suitably prime ministerial, so they photoshopped in um, new sneakers, except they put both of them were left feet. (laughs) It's like, why? Why? It's just incompetent media. Okay, again, we're getting onto gaffes and glitches, but as it continued... It became clear, and as I think we all did, yeah, you know, Scott Morrison's a cunt, uh, that he's domineering. Uh, what else have I got here? His continual sookage that he didn't do anything wrong when he said that. It's just that people misunderstood what he meant. It was it, Nothing was ever his fault. But if people misunderstand what you mean, then isn't there a problem there? <laughs> you've, yeah. you've said if it, if the wrong constantly, thing. Yes. If it constantly happens, right? I mean, isn't there a problem, right? If people constantly misunderstand you, isn't there a communication problem? No, oh no, it's kind of everyone else's fault, not mine, right? So, so then we come to the final election. And again, I'm curious about what John Howard said about this. I think the biggest single weakness in the coalition's campaign was that we had no economic plan for the future. People weren't shouting, we want Albo. They weren't. They stumbled into a change of government because we offered them nothing for the future. Morrison himself, of course, has the standard reaction to that. I don't agree with that, and I've told John that. And I can only put it down to not being familiar with the details of our policy position. The 
the documentary presents the argument that kind of a, a lot of, I guess, chill <laughs> MPs who lost their seats <laughs> mentioned that kind of, oh, you know, oh, we like you, but we don't like Scott Morrison, so we're not going to vote for you. So, yeah. Well, that was the thing. Um, a vote for you is a vote for Scott Morrison, yeah. and while I like you as yeah. my local MP, yeah. I don't want him. I think there was quite clear a dislike. No, just putting that aside, regard, no, there, there was quite a clear dislike for him. When, when the actual MPs are saying that's what yeah. their electorate is telling them, I, I, I think we can take that on board. Yeah. And it's true that Australian elections have become, you know, well, considering a leader has become more important over time. You know, it's just a fact, you know. Like, like 2019, like, you know, like Bill Shorten's approval ratings are quite low, regardless of the, of the ALP being ahead in 2019 election, right? You know. And he nearly got in. Yeah. But... Not enough, right? So you, uh, could, you could argue that it could have been a factor, right? That was Scott Morrison's miracle victory. Yes, that he was more popular than Bill Shorten, which is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not... <laughs> I think we've answered that point. Yeah. So let's um, have a refresh of our drinks. Yep. And uh, then come back and do a bit of a wrap yep. of the whole series. Yep. Right, we've done the the three episodes with Prime Ministers uh, Tony Abbott, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. <laughs> Let's do a sum up, um, Snarky Platypus. Yep. Overall, what did you feel about the series Nemesis? With the proof caveat, I haven't seen kind of the previous kind of types of series about this. but um, Sure, we're yep. looking at it in yeah. its own right. We are. It was insightful in a way, but very disjointed, obviously. (laughs) Well, welcome to the Australian government. (laughs) Yes. I thought the narrative was disjointed and there could have been a bit more context provided, you know, kind of, um, Mm. you know, I I understand kind of they wanted to highlight all the politicians and their views, but kind of uh, I thought the narrative was a lot stronger in the last two episodes. Mm -hmm. the Tony Abbott episode was not good at all, to be honest. Well, obviously, because well, as in, there was well, a lack of it. We, we had a lack of Tony Abbott in it. A lack of Tony Abbott and, and, and lack of the other power players. But even then, just in general, kind of, um, I thought the narrative was strongest in the final episode of, of, of the series because there were more people involved and, you know, it was more recent in our minds, you know. Well, that makes a difference, certainly. Yeah. And as I say, it was the three-act play. Yeah. And it really was... It came to Scott Morrison and it was a build-up yeah. to, like, what the fuck happened when Scott Morrison was Prime Minister? Yeah. No, yeah. We haven't talked about AUKUS, yeah. which was driven by Scott yeah. Morrison. That's another whole yes, it is. episode in itself. And, dear listener, I will in the yeah. – fuck it. Yeah. I will in the Autumn series, and I'll say this now, I will do an episode on AUKUS. But um, I do have a note here about AUKUS, actually. So Please do. Uh, yeah, so – I suspect AUKUS will be remembered in a different way to what both Malcolm and Scott think. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we need to say that Malcolm thinks it's terrible and Scott thinks it's his greatest fucking thing. Make of that what you will. Let's look at some of the other comments I got overall um, on the socials. I mean, obviously people hated Scott Morrison uh, Nemesis completed. I never want to see Scott Morrison in his smirk and hear his smarmy voice ever again. That was certainly a popular thing. 
John Domenico at The Chaser did a review of Nemesis uh, with, with the headline, They're All a Bunch of Cunts. Now, <laughs> I mean, he's right. Yes. But his uh, view is more nuanced than that. And I'll, I'll just read the first two paragraphs. There'll, there'll be a link. You can read the whole thing. So he says the fourth. it's the fourth instalment of their post-mortem journalism documentaries on previous federal governments. So this is thing. Um, and then he says, if you're looking for hard-hitting journalism about what really went down in the halls of Parliament House during the coalition government while, while breaking down the key issues, as the ads promised and as the media has been raving about, you will be disappointed. I agree. However, if you're looking for a mean girl's knockoff that replaces the fashionable but somewhat likeable teenage girls acting like rude brats with a with a lot of rich old white men acting like bratty teenager girls, then you're in luck. Um, in terms of fighting truth to power, I think he means speaking truth to power, nemesis is to journalism what married at first sight is to journalism. Now, I disagree. At the very beginning of our conversation, I said, this is not a program about policy or government. It's a program about power and politics. My problem with, I guess, the whole documentary is that it doesn't really disassemble the power politics in, in the Liberal Party, right? Now, I mentioned before the lack of factional, I guess, the lack of of a chart of factional alignments, right? Kind that's, of a, that's true, actually. Yeah. We just had Scott Morrison denying that there's factions. Yeah. When you and I both look at the Liberal Party and go, they fucking will are. And there are literally published articles about this. <laughs> it's not kind yeah. of, yeah, it's not, you know, it's not a secret. It's not a secret, right? That said, I, I want to just angrily push back at various people who are saying, all this happened, why didn't the ABC report on this at the time? And it's like, they fucking did. Yeah, but at of- length, every fucking day, every fucking week, yeah. every fucking program had these these stories about who was up, who's fucking sock puppet asshole about the leadership. If you weren't paying attention at the time and want this to be a summary, my God, what sort of political fucking enthusiast are you? Sorry, that was a bit of a thing. <laughs> but, I mean, having not seen the previous series, it's hard to compare, but my issue with this series is kind of the narrative was not very good. It, to be honest, it could have literally used a narrator, a proper narrator. I think it would have helped, to be honest. Oh, okay. Of, yeah. That, this, yeah. That's an interesting start. We yeah. didn't have a narrator. Yeah. If we any, if we ever had anything along the lines of narration is required here, there was just a, yeah. a bit of text came yeah. on screen. But even to explain this policy from a very basic level, as you mentioned before, it was an egg, right? You know, kind of, what, what the fuck's an egg? The National Energy Guarantee, yes. and we looked it up. And yes, it and maybe just even a one or two sentence description, right? It would have helped, I think. It would have helped a lot because there wasn't enough explanation about things. So... In a way, it did explain quite well what politicians were thinking, but the con- the contextual understanding it presented was not very good. And this allowed people like Morrison to obfuscate what was happening, or try to anyway, because uh, I guess if you have any kind of semblance of critical thinking, you can tell Morrison is bullshitting this entire series. Absolutely, like, yeah. and and I I think some of the, the critics on social media uh, were, were complaining about is that in the show... 
We had various other people saying what their views were. And then Scott Morrison with his smug cunt face just rejecting that. And I think what the other people wanted was for an ABC narrator to say, he's lying. The production decision, the stylistic decision made in these programs is we won't say it. We'll let you come to that conclusion. We will not spoon feed you the answer. Now that's that's a production decision. Yeah. You're right. A narrator can point out what happens. In my view, that's a bit like how American drama series don't show actors acting yeah. and you see an actor yeah. reacting and going, yeah. oh, I think that's wrong. They have the actor saying, oh, I think that's wrong. My personal view of a narrator is that they shouldn't do that. It's, a narrator is just there to provide some con- like facts and context. A right? few facts. Yeah. But, yeah, I wouldn't expect a narrator to say that Morrison is, like, lying. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, yeah. But, well, um, we know he's yeah. lying. I mean, you can <laughs> You've tell. You've shown he's lying. You can tell in the final episode because they mentioned three times, at three different times in the final episode that, about the, the the multiple minister thing. And they kind of heavily, heavily imply that kind of Morrison is speaking out of his ass there, right? Mm. Yeah. So you don't need it. Or I mean, well, that's my point. Yeah, but I mean, like some people think they need to point it out, but I don't think you need that to be pointed out. I mean, that's that was one of the key points of the final episode. That Morrison's a little shit. Okay, a couple of more final things. Yeah. Uh, Julia Dassin on the elephant site yeah. sent me a lovely quote. This is actually from Chum- someone called Joan Didion from 1988 in yeah. the New York Review of Books, and I don't know who Joan Didion is. You'll have to look all this up for yourself. But it's a a fascinating quote. All stories, of course, depend for their popular interest upon the invention of personality or character. But in the political narrative, designed as it is to maintain the illusion of consensus by obscuring rather than addressing actual issues, this invention served a further purpose. Now, she's talking about American politics in the 80s, which is, well, that's... um, Reagan. Reagan. <laughs> Which is <laughs> You were alive then. I was I'm the toddler. <laughs> that was a huge brain fade. I could picture his face. Okay, I'll do it again. Uh, which was, you know, the Reagan era. I'll leave all that in. That's funny. Um, but it, it applies today, I think, isn't it? And and this series is about creating the narrative or about reinforcing the narrative. Well, I guess to put it back out, so, yeah. Number one, this series is very self-serving, right? You know, politicians want to kind of, you know, make themselves look better, you know. Kind of sure, the, which is why it's weird yeah. that Tony Abbott didn't go on. Yeah, cover their ass, right? Which is one of the prime intentions of this series. Sure, which which leads me, therefore, and I think you've just answered it, to Justin Warren, who not not only friend of the party, was on the last episode. He says, my question Boils down to Kui Bono. Now, I want to say, whenever I see Kui Bono, yeah. which is Latin for who benefits, I see Cujo Bono, which yeah. means good dog from the 1983 film yeah. Cujo, which is weirdly enough based on a Stephen King novel. Yeah. About yeah. The- I, I, I'll tell you all. Okay, let's all say woof together. Woof. But Kui Bono, who benefits? Who benefits from this program being made and aired? And how do they benefit? 
The ABC benefits from it most, to be honest. <laughs> well, they they are they are being seen to perform their public duty. Yeah, but you know, but um, I had issues with how this was produced, to be honest. Anyway, I mean, as we might have discussed before, Mark Willisy is fine. I, this is not to degrade from Mark Willisy. Oh no, it's not Mark Willisy. It's just the general concept, kind of. Um, it just seems kind of a bit vacuous in a way, just the way they approach things. Vacuous is a strong word. But it's not because um, no, it is. Well, it is a strong word, but in this context, it's not because nothing is ever really questioned. It's kind of, oh, you know, you say this for a while. You know, of, of, of course Scott Morrison is going to deny things because he With will. With his smug cunt yeah, face. Exactly. Yeah, like On the thing. Yeah. But that's an unsatisfying kind of, like, sequence of events, right? You know, someone says something, someone denies it. I'm like, eh? Is this really satisfying for the viewer? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows? It's mystery. Uh, so. Yeah. You've got a point. It really is time to, to finish that. Uh, for all of you, if you're in Australia, Nemesis will be on ABC iView for quite some time, I imagine, given that it's one of their landmark documentaries. Uh, but for all of you at home, dear listener, I think we really fucking need to move on. Well, that's the politics done. And if you decided to skip all that, well, welcome back. There's still some things to come. Uh, But right now it's time for some housekeeping. First, the very next episode uh, will be recorded very, very soon in just a matter of hours with David F. Porteous, the Scottish author and social researcher who's been on the pod before. He's a lot of fun to talk to about things that are happening in uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, things are happening over there as well, you may have heard. Now, the thing is, though, we are recording very soon. If you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic for that episode, please get them to me by Friday, the 23rd of February. Oh, God, that's tonight as this is being posted. You've got until 9pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. I may be able to accept things after that, but please do rush to get them to me. I know some of you... Plenty of you have spare uh, trigger words and conversation topics, so you know feel free to burn them off. And then the final episode in the summer series, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one as well, Professor Johanna Weaver, former cyber diplomat for Australia. She's head of the Tech Policy Design Centre at ANU and she's presenter of the podcast Tech Mirror, Reflecting on Technology and Society. Now, that won't be for a while, You've got until Wednesday the 7th of March to get me your trigger words in a conversation topic. Yeah, we had trouble lining our schedules up. Um, I know March isn't in summer, but because this will be the last episode of the summer series, I am declaring March 2024 to be part of summer. That's my edict for today. There you go. And that will wrap up the summer series, um, which uh, obviously you have supported, dear listener, through my previous crowdfunder. Thank you so much. You're all listed on the podcast website. I won't make things longer by by mentioning you again here. But I will say that the uh, next season crowdfunder is already underway. Of course it is. We've got to get things in the pipeline. So that's the 9pm Autumn Series 2024 
Uh, we're already 16% of the way to target one, but we need to get that moving a bit faster. It only runs until the 7th of March. That's 13 days away. Please go to the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2024. That's the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2024. I really do need your support this quarter. It's what makes these podcasts possible, and it's what... Uh, pays my uh, food and bills while I'm doing it. The 9pmedict.com slash autumn 2024. Please consider. Dear listener, if you have survived this long through this episode, that, well... As regular listeners uh, to the pod will know, uh, I have the glass jar of transparency, which normally contains folded up pieces of paper, and each one contains words sent in by a supporter, which they've paid for. I'll come back to that. Uh, in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. However, today, since we are recording in a, a two-and-a-half-star hotel room in the Sydney CBD, check the, uh, check the website for a photograph, I have the wine glass of disappointment. Uh, that's because there's actually only three in there. This is the point I wanted to make. If you are a supporter and you have bought the rights to a trigger word, please tell me. Um, even if your trigger word is, I oh, just choose a random word for randomword.com because there's, there's literally one to... There's three trigger words in here. Well, it makes it very easy then. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll only do one because this is already a very long episode. Yeah. Um. Okay, this is from Paul Williams. Hi, hi, Paul. Chocolate containing alcohol. Now, I don't know whether this means chocolate which contains alcohol or alcohol or it's chocolate containing Alcohol. Yep. Are we talking here about those Christmassy kind of chocolates that have liqueur in them? I would like a drunken chocolate cake. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a cake expert, obviously, but but I do like the idea of a drunken chocolate cake. Just kind of. Oh, a, okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Like I, I, a liqueur filled chocolate cake. I don't know. That is literally a thing. Yeah. So. You can make a chocolate cake, but you pour in before it's a shitload of alcohol. Yeah. It's a bit like a an Australian Christmas trifle. So you know what a trifle is? I that's, do, yes. that's a sponge cake with custard on top yeah. and shit. But if it's Christmas, you pour like a cup of sherry into it before serving so that would, sponge cake soaks up the alcohol. Would would a, a vodka mud cake work or um, I mean, you could, but the problem with, in this context, yeah. uh, the, I, I was about to say the problem with vodka. There's no problem with vodka, let me be very clear. But in this context, you're yeah. looking at a dessert thing, yes. something that's a bit sweeter, like a liqueur. So sherry works. I mean, I know you're not a sherry fan. Yeah, I'm a bit young for that. So. <laughs> It's coming back into fashion. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I noticed, but <laughs> my comment remains. <laughs> but uh, a sweeter liqueur you could put in. I mean, I suppose you could do an absinthe sponge oh, cake <laughs> with the mint and the ab. Oh, no. I mean, uh, I mean, Tim, you know, it's kind of a. I haven't drunk my absinthe since we shared that. A bottle of absinthe. <laughs> did we share a bottle of absinthe? About like two decades ago. So. Yeah, yeah. Did we have all of it in one night? Yes, we did. Oh, that's that's a fucking episode of Black Books. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I haven't had much since then. <laughs> if you, if you want a really good dear listener, if you want a really good selection of absinths, plural, go to the Gin Palace in Melbourne, where apart from being obviously a bar that serves. Many, 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 many kinds of gin. They have also many kinds of absinthe and they have the proper equipment. Uh, for- or just, or go to Prague. <laughs> well, not all of us have been to Prague. Oh, it's true, but I have been to Prague. And, yeah, I can, I, can, I can assure you <laughs> that there are a lot of absinthe places in Prague. Did, did you have absinthe in Prague? I did, yes. And what did you think of it, where it comes from? I mean, it's a tourist trap now. It's hard to tell. I know, I know. That's the problem with it. So many fucking tourists in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. And that's, and that's a problem, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, a real good absinthe is a lovely thing. I, I, okay, it has a certain taste. Uh, in Australia, yeah. you can't get the ones yeah. with quite the full yeah. amount of wormwood in yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, whereas in Prague, you can. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure quite of your listeners, quite a few listeners have been to Prague, but you know, but. Regardless, of, like, okay. Pro- write that in. Yeah. I I wish to know. Um, I should set up a poll on the socials. Have you been? To Have Prague? you been to Prague? Yes, no. Yeah. Simple question. Yeah. But regardless, I haven't. But regardless, Prague is a lot of fun. Regardless, regard is it twist Oh, really? It is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cheap food, cheap booze, good views. <laughs> what else do you want? History. You know? did, what did, else do you want? Did you have good sex in Prague? No, I've never had sex in Prague. To be honest. Okay. I was a fucking I was on I was on a Kentucky tour book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love the fact in his youth, Snake Platypus went on a Kentucky tour of Europe. Yes, I did, yes. <laughs> You're losing a lot of points right there. Do we need to cancel this segment and pretend, and pretend it never happened? <laughs> We might need to, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you, uh, Paul Williams, for chocolate-containing alcohol. Uh, mate, send some chocolate-containing alcohol. We're right here. You know my address. I am going to continue with this podcast, despite the fact it's gone on for fucking ever. Um. With a topic each yep. that's not about Nemesis. And I would like to refer to a BBC story uh, which says, scientists grow meaty rice hybrid food for protein kick. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is happening, because you know, we know that growing meat, beef, lamb, whatever, yep. is terrible for the environment. Yep. Quite frankly, I don't care. I love it. It's yummy. Yeah. Fuck the planet. Um Complain to me, send me hate mail, I don't care. But there is a lot of work on how can we create that without having, you know, paddocks and yeah, sure. animals and whatever. 
So according to the BBC, scientists have created a new type of hybrid food, a meaty rice that could offer an affordable and eco-friendly source of protein. So how it works is the porous grains of rice are packed with beef muscle and fat cells and grown in the lab. And the rice was first coated in fish gelatin to help the beef cells latch on, and then the grains were left in a Petri dish to culture for up to 11 days. So my first reaction was, have they not heard of basmati rice before? <laughs> basmati rice has a lot of protein. <laughs> look, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to look that up because I don't it, think no, it's it does. a I, lot. I, well, it does have more, more, more than the other. Yeah. Not, I mean. Well, even in this stuff, yeah. even with this whole thing, you get to uh, about 7% protein. Yeah. Now, basmati rice, I've now got it in front of yeah. me, 3.5% protein. I agree it's not. Which is more it. than... Yeah, more than normal rice, but kind So of, chuck some fucking chickpeas into it. Well, this is what people in South Asia do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've heard of South Asia. <laughs> well, I hope you have, because God, what, like, like 1.5, 1.6 billion people? <laughs> I'm sure I hope so. Uh, whatever it is, yeah. yeah it, it's, it's a lot of the It's cars. a lot of people, yes. Um, what are they really trying to do here, to be honest? <laughs> Look, I, I get the idea, but the question is, what are the inputs to create this? So you've already got to create the rice, which involves a lot of farming, and then you're putting it in a lab with, with stuff. So so is the overall thing less drama than the actual process of just... So my first question is, who who, who is doing this? Scientists. Yeah, but, but <laughs> which scientists? This, this, this might prove to be kind of enlightening. So. A team of at Yonsei University in South Korea. You know, I, I wouldn't consider Korea to be kind of the, the centre of rice science. <laughs> not kind of a... Well, yeah, I, I, I have never bought rice from Korea. I buy rice from Thailand, and if the supermarket doesn't have that, it's sun, sun white rice from fucking sun white. From the Riverina. Yeah, <laughs> and it's shit. Like I put it in the rice. It, oh, God. I, I don't – look, no, I don't care. I get Royal Umbrella or the Ugh. Lion fucking rice from Thai town, chuck it in the rice cooker, awesome. You get the fucking stuff from the Riverina and you get this gluggy shit. It's yeah. not the same. Admittedly – you know, the major supermarkets, it'll be cheaper. But it's not that fucking expensive, right? It's rice. Okay, back to the, the thing here. Um, for every 100 grams of protein produced, hybrid rice uh, uses uh, releases 6.27 kilograms of carbon dioxide, while beef production releases eight times that. Uh, 49.89 kilograms. But, I mean, it's, why it's don't shit you, rice compared to a proper yummy cow. Why did you just eat more tofu or tempeh? Oh, oh, now you're asking really complicated. <laughs> because they're soy-based protein solutions, as you know. So you I, know. I know, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but I have, I have exceeded the, the boundaries of this yes, problem. Yes, I know. That's not within scope. Yep. Uh, can I show you the photograph of this beefy rice? It looks like, can I suggest, 
a bowl of rice except everything's pink and looks like vaguely ground beef or look, pork? Look, you know, I'm just going to suggest that, you know, they've, that, they actually haven't thought out of the box here really. They need to consider other cultural foods here, not just, you know, what's in, or what's in Korea. So, and I'm, I'm just going to mention that and I'll just leave it at that. So. <laughs> okay, let's, let's move on to yeah. something um, which you wanted to raise. Uh, I have in front of me an ABC story, uh, celebrations for some but trials for others, why these young Asians are disengaging with the Lunar New Year. Oh, yes. Lovely racism in the ABC. um, Lunar New Year is a big festival, right? Big family thing in in Asia. In Asia, not just from the Chinese diaspora but from Vietnamese and Cambodian. Okay, so the thing about younger people – um, going back to family to have all the thing. Have yeah. you got a partner yet? Yeah. When will you get married? Yeah. When will you have a baby? How about a second baby? Yeah. Uh, thing. So it is fair to say, may I put forward, that these questions basically are hit to every person of Asian background from about the age of 18. No, because that's not my experience. <laughs> okay, putting uh, – all right. Well, no. I mean, I'll explain further if you want. So, firstly, can, kind I, of, can I say first though? Do you accept their um, lived experience as a? Of course, I do. But this is my problem with the whole article. It's not the only lived experience, right? You know, kind of. Yeah. Go on. So I will talk about my own lived experience, right? Oh, yeah. if you as, have to. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's relevant. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the interview in the article, well, just straight people. So that's my first point. But straight women, two of them are straight women, right? I, I I'm now scrolling through and I'm seeing... No, they... There they, is a man here, no, but they, I'm seeing they mostly... They interviewed two, two Chinese heritage women and one Korean heritage man, and this Korean heritage man has a Chinese heritage wife. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the, the Korean guy because he's in... Full fucking yep. um, with regional his Chinese costume. heritage wife <laughs> um, in full wedding costume. Yes, it's yes. actually really yeah. lovely. Yeah, but as we all know, kind of um, diaspora heritages are quite varied, right? <laughs> Shocking news. Oh, yeah, one of the the wonderful quotes I, I got. I don't know who said this. Lumping everything together as Asian culture yeah. is like lumping together. Denmark and Spain as European culture or or Sweden and Italy. Yeah. They're, they're not the same. They are really different things, but you're talking about the same geographical yeah. extent. But, you know, there's all the white yeah. people in Europe. There's all the yeah. not white people yeah. in Asia. Like, there's so yeah. much difference. That's just even my experience, just explaining, like, my culture to kind of just white, white gay men in general, like, you know, they all think my family's like extremely homophobic. No, I actually told my parents I was gay at 17 and it was never an issue. But this is a problem with a lot of this kind of journalism. Like, they like to pretend that Asian cultures are conservative, right? But this is the thing about the article. It does not present any other point of view. This is one of the reasons that I'm a great fan of some of the emerging Asian-Australian comedians because they are exploring these issues in their comedy. And at the end of the pod, I'll, I'll give yeah. people some suggestions of some people they might yeah. like to follow. He Huang. He Huang. Yeah. We've talked about her. Look her up. 
um, Aaron Chen. Most of the people listening to this will know him as playing George Chen in Fisk and because on the ABC and because Fisk went to um, uh, Netflix and then became a top ten Netflix show in many countries. He is now in April selling out like six shows at the State Theatre in Sydney and others. Really nice guy. Um, no, I haven't met him, so I shouldn't say he's a really but, um, nice guy. He might be yeah. calm. But 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 I think if you want to if you want to explore cultural issues first, I think Her Huang is quite good. She Her Huang good. is good. Yeah. Um, Aaron Chen, I love because he's just mad. Well, he grew up in the suburb next to me, apparently. So. Yeah, it is, he's a Sydney boy. He's mad fucking autistic. Yeah, fucking Asquith. Yeah. <laughs> Look on YouTube for his show last year, which was Aaron Chen. If I weren't filmed, no one, nobody would believe. Are we done here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we. I mean, we've run out of wine for starters. I, I know. I, I know. I know. <laughs> Snarky Platypus, thank you very much for your yeah. time today. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, dear, what a mess. That's all the edict for now. Uh, I won't add any more comedians uh, to your watch list just yet, but I will be doing a blog post uh, listing a few very, very soon, so watch out for that. Uh, please consider supporting the current crowdfunder, the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2024, uh, or just tell your friends, really, and like and subscribe and all that stuff. The more, the merrier. The next episode is coming up very, very soon with David F. Porteous. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.